Welcome to the Propaganda Report. I'm Monica Perez here with my co-host, Brad Binkley. We are very happy to welcome today a guest who will help us begin our newly launched exploration of libertarian solutions within the system. He is an assistant editor for the Mises Wire and previously served as deputy communications director for the House Financial Services Committee. His articles have been featured in The Federalist, The Daily Caller and Business Insider. And he has been on countless platforms, great and small, discussing everything from Rothbardian libertarian theory to pragmatic political solutions. We can't wait to hear about what he's doing to restore some liberty in this COVIDian dystopia from his home state of Florida. So let's say hello to Tho Bishop. Tho, hello. How are you? I'm doing great. So glad to join you guys. Thank you so much. And I know you are uh, in a jam, literally in a traffic jam. So, but the show must go on. So we really appreciate that you are still connecting, even though you're stuck in the, in the, in the downside of living in paradise. So, yes, yes it is incredible. The traffic we've, we've, the amount of people that have come through Bay County this past year is one of the few oases of freedom. Uh, it's traffic is one of the downsides, but I'll take it uh, considering I was able to go, uh, maskless just about everywhere last year yes i i had to recently relocate to los angeles from georgia and just in the worst possible time (laughs) it was terrible and as soon as i got here like i noticed they were doing crazy things i minded that they closed the churches and the restaurants and the bars but i think what really caused this mass exodus was when they closed the gyms people just like wouldn't have it and i thought i wonder (laughs) if they're closing all this stuff to send people to smaller blue red cities to turn them blue. Like I expect like LA could afford <laughs> millions and millions of people to leave and it would still be blue. Maybe they're seeding the rest of the world. So watch your back down there. All right. And that's the number one issue that we have right now is that because everyone wants to move here, we have to make sure that particularly here in the panhandle, which is always kind of been where Republicans have, have kind of needed at the end of the night. Uh, you're trying to make sure that we don't get too many uh, New Yorkers uh, uh, coming down here as a constant topic of conversation. Oh, so, yeah. Uh, so it's trying to figure out how to, how to guard against it. They don't seem to realize I, I'm originally from New York. I was raised by a traditional conservative who I mean, he wouldn't even vote Republican. He was like, they're all the same. And <laughs> I just so I grew up in New York where we didn't I did not only did I not know any traditional conservatives, I didn't know any Republicans even. Then I moved to Texas and I was like, wow, these must all be traditional conservatives. And then I discovered that they were just Republicans. And then I realized my dad might be right because they were voting their interests rather than on principle. But in any case, you would think anybody who gets out of one of the places that's really been ruined by bad ideology would want a fresh start. And instead, they just they just can't they seem to lack discernment between what was the good stuff and the bad stuff that they left behind well that's definitely one of the advantages of uh, fauciism in particular is that i I think that enough of the blue voters are probably true believers that death santis was you know racking up a kill count here in the sunshine state um so i i think the people attracted here are perhaps a little bit different than say the californians have taken over boise idaho you know, and some of the issues that you have in some of those uh, Mountain West states, at least that, that is the, the narrative that I'm telling myself to be able to sleep <laughs> easier at night. Um, is there a DeSantis uh, kill count? I hadn't, has that been something they're throwing around, the DeSantis kill count? 
I will, that, that Santos has become one of the, oh uh, the nicknames that Democrats are really trying to pin on it, which is, I mean, they're going to meme DeSantis into being, you know, uh, <laughs> some sort of, of great embodiment of uh, right wing uh, uh, power. In fact, there, there was a lawyer to the west of us that would travel around the beaches last year in this like Grim Reaper setup, um, <laughs> you know, trying to scare people. I, I'm just, I, Miraculous, he didn't get the heat stroke, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I think that, that all of that stuff hasn't worked out particularly well, which is uh, – I, I think the Senate is probably going to win this next uh, election by more than the 33,000 people he, he squeaked by with in uh, 2018. So this is what – the main reason I want to talk to you, there's so many things that we could talk about because you're so knowledgeable and can go both <laughs> like 30,000 feet, but you can also go really, really in-depth, and I, I appreciate that. But lately – We've been thinking like we do our show. It's daily news and daily news mm-hmm. itself from a perspective of truth, liberty and justice. It can be mm-hmm. demoralizing in itself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for a while there, it was OK to just kind of try to open people's eyes to the truth and connect dots, even if it's just like simple economic facts. But then it just it's starting to get really demoralizing with the lockdowns and all that. And I, for one, I'm, I have always been, or for as long as I can remember, an anarcho-capitalist, a voluntarist, a, a real hardcore libertarian. But now I feel like we've got to, we've got to uh, hold the line, like the constitution, the bill of rights, they still exist. And we probably need to just make sure we shore up those defenses before we try for something better, like a, a voluntary society. And someone recommended that. Cam Harless, our friend from We Are the Mad mm-hmm. recommended. Oh, yeah. And we talked to you because he's also in Florida. And he said, you know, you're doing practical things to keep to just try to take back some liberty. And, and so I'm interested in some of the practical things you're doing and also how you kind of reconcile the, the you know, for me, ideological purity is really important. And it's, you know, what's the difference between me compromising to just hold the line and me just like, screw it, be a two-party system Republican? Well, it's interesting because like an, an Austro-Libertarian thought on the, the pessimism, optimism, black pill, blue or a white pill sort of scale. On the one side, you can get like Mises was very pessimistic at the end of his life. He has this great quote where he's like, you know, I, I set out to be a champion of reform, uh, but instead ended up being a historian of decline. Right. Like he, he died thinking that, you know, that civilization was just collapsing. What year um, was that? But what he noticed. That was in his late, mid seventies, early seventies, oh. um, and because he, he passed away, I think it was seventy four, seventy five, around there. Right. And, and so he passed away before the collapse of the Soviet Union. He, he before a lot of vindication in some ways of a lot of his his ideas. And so the other side of the scale, you had Rothbard, and it's interesting is Rothbard was far more of a political um, uh, radical in some ways. I, he, he was, uh, uh, you know, he, he was, you know. The founder of anarcho-capitalism and kind of the true American sense, whereas Mises was always kind of more of an anarchist. And, and Rothbard always had optimism to the very end. And and I, I think that there's it's it's interesting because Rothbard, I think one of the very unique aspects of it, and it's one of the aspects of his work that I so appreciate is his his his, his interest in genuine political strategy. Because not only was he this great political theorist, this great economist, this great historian. But he was very intrigued about how did ideas actually come to shape shape society. And so what I find myself in in the current age is from this Rothbardian lens, 
I think that there's more reason to be optimistic about cracks in the American regime, the, the true American empire. I think there's more cracks now than ever before. And, and so what I've been interested in recently, in, in particular, is Rothbard's work in the 90s, because I think there's a lot of parallels, because in, in the, the early 90s, you had the, kind of the, the end of the Cold War era, which is when the, the neocon war hawks, the, the Soviet Union Cold War um, uh, radicals had a big stranglehold on a major political party, the, the Republican Party. Um, the same way where early 2000s, after, after 9-11, you had the neocons revive, you know, come back up and, and convince us to invade the Middle East. Well, just as we, you know, in the 90s, you had a post-Cold War society. Now, politically, not necessarily in terms of foreign policy, right? We're still, you know, we're, we're still bombing the Middle East. We're still very overspread there. Politically, we're in a post-war on terror environment. You know, we're, we're perhaps now in a war on domestic terror. And, and to me, it's precisely that aspect where you have the American regime, NDC, so militantly against half the country, in this case, Trump supporters. That is, I think, what allows for the opportunities for us as hardcore libertarians to recognize that there's an audience here with the 50 plus million Americans that understand the 2020 election was stolen from them. That doubt of the legitimacy of the American federal government, that to me is one of the biggest moments of modern American history that has ever existed in this dynamic between liberty and power. And so I think it's a very so so my my reading of the landscape as a political Rothbardian is that while we're perhaps not well on our way to privatizing all the schools and you know legalizing recreation or heroin and, and <laughs> you know, getting rid of all the private you know, all of the, you know, the 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 last sort of stages of anarcho capitalism, right? I think that the way of waking up your average American to the the realities of this regime, we're further along that way than ever possible. So that that's why I, I find a lot of reasons to be optimistic. Well, I have a my concern in that is that you have an equal reaction or an equal amount of energy on the other side. So what you might be getting is real civil conflict of a highly destructive nature. And since outside like the the system, you know, let's say the U.S., society, culture, nature, whatever nation that outside that system is a global system, a world system that has a lot of power and force and is nowhere near volunteerism. So if you collapse, yes. if this system collapses, that's where it goes rather than to a, a better place, a voluntary place. Mm -hmm. I, I think that you are right to identify that the issue as Americans is not isolated to you know, Washington, D.C., there is this much larger Western um, push towards centralized power that we saw with the establishment of the, the European Union, um, the growth of the World Bank, the IMF. And, and so I think that's that what's that's what makes this, this dynamic interesting is that the right wing pushback, this this nationalistic impulse is not simply in the U.S., in the Trump phenomenon. Right. We also saw with Brexit, we've seen with other parties in the, in, in, in Europe. And so there is this larger reaction to, I think, what might be properly seen as overextension of both the political left, properly understood. I, I think you definitely see it in America, right? Like the, the Antifa. I, th I think you have seen this, this rising backlash from certain types of the electorate against what we saw the last year in the U.S. 
But then you also have seen a backlash through, let's call it the radical center of, of these neoliberals, um, you know, that have been rewarding this corporate, this international globalist corporate class. And I think it's precisely the response to these extravagances that creates the opportunity for what I would think, you know, the, the libertarians that are influenced by, you know, what, what Rothbard or, or would, would call the old right. Um, I think that is where that this the, a, a, a reactionary case for uh, decentralization and the rejection of this globalist economic apparatus. Like we have answers to what many on this non-ideological reflexive reactionary right are looking for. And, and that is why I think that right now as libertarians, what's best for us strategically is less trying to play this both sides are equally bad. You weren't either left nor right. Instead, doing outreach to the right as a reaction to these much larger forces and try to explain why our advocacy for free markets and, and sound money and, and localism give the outcomes that they want, even if it may go against kind of their, their known instincts on tariffs and, and some of these other aspects that kind of get wrapped into what we consider kind of the, the economic populism of this nationalist movement. So when you, I, let's get into that kind of strategy a little bit where you're mm -hmm. tapping into that feeling, which I mean, for me, the American experiment, the feeling that Ron Paul generated in 2008 mm -hmm. for me, but also obviously 2012 and beyond was totally reminiscent of what I learned at my father's knee and he learned mm -hmm. at his father's knee. Then there's this other thing, this kind of Trump thing, which took some of that energy, galvanized it, but redirected it into, I think I, I, I credit him for bringing identity politics to the right because he turned that into like a more emotional thing. So you have that idea of like America first, but mm -hmm. it isn't always backed up by the sound ideology on which right. this America was founded. And we see you, uh, why you were even called to our attention is how you reach across the aisle, like with the little half aisle to the Republicans. And are they receptive to that libertarian element of it? Or are you, are you in educating them? Are you just, are you leveraging their energy for policies that you know they appreciate and that you appreciate maybe on a deeper level? How is that relationship? What, how does that work? Yeah. Well, first and foremost, I think that one of the reasons that Ron Paul was so successful as a radical libertarian is the same reasons why he was really hated by a lot of national libertarian organizations. Right? You know, you know Ron Paul was treated at Cato without the same sort of uh, uh, reverence that they would treat um, even like a, like a Governor Christie or like a, a Federal Reserve chairman. Uh, Reason Magazine, yeah, I mean, used to write very snarky things about it, and, and it's precisely because there's a large aspect of the libertarian movement nationally that kind of always was uncomfortable with the uh, social and cultural conservatism of Ron Paul, at, you know, both in, in terms of his personal beliefs and also his attitude, right? And that's one of the things that actually pushed Murray Rothbard and Lee Rockwell out of the LP after Ron Paul's 88 Libertarian Party campaign is because they saw this dynamic at play. And so I think that the beauty of it is that there's a, a rhetorically, not necessarily in terms of ideology, because Donald Trump himself wasn't really an, an ideological force. He, he was a man of action. He was a man of energy. And so what you have with the Donald Trump moment 
was this appeal to America as a, a an entity worth fighting for, which I think is, is some, one of those issues that can divide libertarians at times. Like there's some libertarians that will kind of laugh at the idea of patriotism or see his nationalism as being antithetical to uh, the concept of the supremacy of human reason, right? You know, there's some that take the idea of philosophical individualism, I think, too far as that go beyond human existence really allow, right? We, we, we all have tribal uh, beings by, by our nature, right? You know, like it or not, that's part of the human existence. And so what Ron Paul did was, was create, I think, a, this, this sort of nostalgic conservative approach to libertarianism that saw us as part of that old school American tradition. And so what Donald Trump did was, was, was celebrate this old American tradition, and perhaps on the same ideological reason, and, and promote this, this nostalgic appeal to defending what is ours. You know, your American birthright is to be great, right? So we're going to make America great again. And what he did was he created a vessel. And, and, and you had some people like Steve Bannon, I, mean, I think has been, been perfectly blunt in saying that he saw Trump as a means to achieve his ideological ends. Steve Bannon has some interesting ideas. Some of them are like with us. Some of them are very hostile to it. Um, you saw various other actors within the Trump administration. He actually hired a lot of very interesting ideological libertarians and like the, the some of his departments, which were able to do some interesting stuff. Um, and so Trump was just a a a tool that was that that was non-ideological nature. And so the beauty of it is that when you go out there, my experience in talking to normal Republicans, they don't pride themselves on being Ron Paul people or or necessarily read, you know, books like like a lot of libertarians do it, but by by the fact that we can sound similar and the fact that we appeal to a lot of the aspects that america's hair the, the libertarian aspects are baked into the american narrative i have found my attacks on the bureaucratic state the deep state for example the swamp america first foreign policy there's all sorts of ways for a radical rothbardian to sound like donald trump in a way that that allows lends itself to practical outreach, and and so I mean, it's, it's, Donald Trump has made me more mainstream within my county Republican Party than, than you know at any point during the the peak of the Ron Paul days, and and so again, this is an I think an opportunity for libertarians if you're willing to to actually listen and respect the people in your community, rather than prioritizing your uh, 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 cred within a kind of libertarian social media. There's a lot of ways of actually winning hearts and minds from people that you may not get all the way to in Kapistan, but can at least acknowledge that we need to get closer to 1776. And that, that's, that itself is a victory in my book. Well, I guess I like what you're saying in that it does have power and is unifying. I think my something that I, I, I wish were emphasized more is that this this tribe, this American um, nation, unlike other kind of organic grew up from the land has a, a cultural tribal history going back in time. Our tribe is kind of a voluntary tribe. People could enter it based on values. So I had my grandmother's parents brought her over um, and whatever, 100 years ago, something like that. 
The mom died in childbirth. There was no welfare or anything. The dad couldn't handle it here. And he went back and he left her in an orphanage. Mm -hmm. And I heard that like a third of the immigrants would go back. So what Mm -hmm. what I think of our tribe is people from all over the world Mm -hmm. who aspired to this, uh, these opportunities, had these values and stayed or left based on that before you started putting up all of these these um, safety nets and that kind of thing so that you could keep people there who didn't really embrace the ideology. And I would say that that ideology, although I do think volunteerism and the rights work and travel and all of that stuff is universal and it should be that that it's that that you kind of have to cordon it off in order to protect it. So if you let 7 billion people come in who didn't understand that the vote is not to vote away basic rights, the vote is just people who would execute it. They need to understand that stuff and they don't. So it's protecting, you know, I would just think that it's to protect the tribe, but that the tribe is based on ideas and principles. And I think that would be like a next step in, in use it in tapping into the, powerful force of, you know, 100 million Americans who, you know, could remember that in their mm-hmm. in their in the legacy. But I worry that the Trump thing kind of derailed us from from recalling that the way, you know, Ron Paul insisted. I mean, college kids were burning burning dollar bills. They were chanting their hero was a guy who quoted economics textbooks. Right. And, and I, I don't think you're going to get such quotes from from Donald Trump. But I, I do think, though, this larger question of cultural assimilation is one of those ones that often gets uh, uh, overlooked in this larger question about the immigration front, because like, there's a lot of Trump supporters, for example, that have no idea that, that uh, this is the number one concern, right? And, and, and I think this actually gets to where my hope is to the American right to get serious about is that all of the great – I think libertarians often fail when they only look at immigration from like a purely economic position. And this is something that, that Lewin von Mises himself, right? You know, someone who considered himself a great classical liberal, he recognized that if you have a, an open border system with an interventionist government that, that you know, finances you know, the infrastructure of power, that there's consequences – and go, going from being, you know, a, a national majority to a national minority, he, he uses the explicit example of Australia opening its borders to, you know, Asian immigrants. That you know, if you're an Australian, you're going to quickly find yourself a minority in your own country, and there's consequences to it. I, I think that there there is a, a level of that that has to be taken seriously. And, and the major issue you have in America right now is the university system, because you can't have widespread immigration simultaneous with institutions that are completely hostile to the notion of assimilation. And, and I, I think you, you see this reflected, actually, in a lot of, of minority populations. I mean, some of the areas uh, under Trump's term where, he, where, where Republicans improved the best, you know, were some of those border counties in Texas. And, and, and that was particularly important because like, it, it wasn't simply like Hispanic Cubans changing, you know, becoming more conservative, which you saw in Florida. But I, this, this, these were these were Hispanic Mexican voters, which typically have different cultural political uh, 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 views, right? And and so I, I think that there is something to be said where a lot of you know a lot of of, of corporate Republicans thought that the, the way of of diversifying the the Republican ticket was by kind of an embrace of a, a complete open borders policy. Instead, what I think we've seen is that uh, uh, Republican values right now. Part of it, I think more important than Trump itself, is the overextension of the left, which has really revealed itself to be militantly anti-Christian, 
anti-male, which for some cultures matters a lot more than others, uh, you know, anti-human. Um, it, it, it is the cultural extravagances of the left that I think have, have awakened, um, you know, some of those Hispanic voters, some of the, even the Asian voters in a way that is, is changing political behavior far more than simply uh, some of the ways that uh, Frank Luntz may have informed Republican leadership in the past as a way of, of, of diversifying their coalitions. So how do you fight it practically out in the real? How do you fight the, the, the communist sort of takeover of the universities, the, uh, the, the left infiltrating all those institutions and organizations? What is the on the ground type strategy? Well, first and foremost is that like, the, the biggest threat to, to, to conservative America, to red state America, to patriotic America, however broadly you want to find it, is not the left. It is a weak Republican Party. Uh, because I, you know, I, I know there's, there's some people that, that think the Libertarian Party can provide some, some values there. I, I disagree with that. I think America has a two-party system. You either work on the left and the right. And when given the, extra, the extremes of the left right now, what you need is a right, a political right, that can function in a way to actually take on these institutions of true power. The problem is, is that Republicans, much like Libertarians, have, have kind of focused all power in terms of the practice like, – very literally, right? You know, we, we focus on the state and the federal government as congressmen and, and politicians, right? And the problem is that, of course, this is not the case. You know, the majority of federal power is not wielded by those democratically elected. It's wielded by bureaucrats. And a lot of the cultural power comes from universities, which then launder their ideas through uh, 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 you know, policy expert apparatuses, through the media, et cetera, right? And so ultimately... The only way that you can make headway on this battle is by radicalizing a major political party, in this case, the Republican Party, to take seriously this issue of leftist indoctrination. And so at a national level, you have not seen this yet. And I've got about my opinion of national Republicans is very, very low. But you have started to see this past year. And again, I, I think a lot of Republicans were blind until the last four years. And I, I think that for a variety of reasons, and I think it's fair to say, well, why didn't you see this earlier? Fine. But, I, but the exciting thing is I do think you're seeing it, and you're seeing it right now with the battles playing out in school boards across the country where people are actually mobilizing and attending school board meetings over critical race theory. You see it in Florida where they pushed actually some laws trying to uh, 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 – Create you know, it's 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 not doesn't go nearly far like far enough, but there are there are, there are ways that they're trying to identify problems within the state university system, um and and it, once you once Republicans start getting used to you know, using this muscle and start and, and really identifying this as the problem that is, then the goal is that it, it creates a model that can be replicated. Um, but but at, you know, to date though, the Republican Party has been bad at addressing any of these real problems. And it will not fix it until you have Republican voters make the Republican Party do it. And again, I, I think there's reasons for optimism, but there's a long way to go. And so what you have to do is try to you radicalize normie Republicans as much as you can um, to get them oriented on the real stakes, of the, you know, the, the real battlefields uh, that actually dictate where the country's going. And how do you do that? How do you radicalize them? Well, for one, you have to talk to them. And, and, and the, the what, what pol all politics is local. And so if it, it's amazing what you can do. If, if you are ideologically driven and you have a little bit of creativity 
And the, you know, every county has a Republican Party and a lot of Republican parties, they, they have a lot of emotion. They know what they don't like. They don't. You know, most Republican parties are you know, ran by people with white hair and they, they know they need to do something, but they don't really know what to do. And so what I've been trying to do here uh, is, is provide an example. I'm, I'm here in the Bay County Republican Party. You know, I've taken over one of our social clubs. You know, because of that, I've been able to have a platform within our party, party structure to talk about, you know, uh, uh, you know, cryptocurrency and encryption and 3D printing and, and gun rights and nullification and secession and, and the, the institutional powers. Right? You know, it, it, I have a platform to pump radical libertarian content, the sort of stuff you'll see on Mises.org in front of normal people. Um, I've been, we've been able to mobilize the GOP because in your average county Republican is convinced they, they know in their heart that the election was stolen. And so, you know, you get them openly talking about, hey, this this presidency isn't legitimate. You, you get them to start thinking about their relationship with Washington itself. That's the way it should be, which is a predatory, illegitimate state. And they, they're, they're already there. I mean, like I. After the, the the Biden administration or the Biden inauguration, Rush Limbaugh actually read one of my articles on Mises.org where I quote Rothbard. I remember it was a radical piece. Rush Limbaugh read that article to his audience, saying, "This is how I feel after watching the Biden administration or the, the Biden inauguration." So here you have Rush Limbaugh himself, the for the longest time the ideological frontman of the conservative movement, generally understood, saying that he felt like a Rothbardian. And so the, the, the things are there. It just requires individuals in these communities to engage with them respectfully, you know, not, not to come in here and say, like, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell you how it's going. You have to engage with them respectfully. You have to understand what's actually motivating your, your neighbors. And then you organize your neighbors in county ways that can build up to something huge um, that, that, that can help change the direction of your state party, that can perhaps change a, a congressional seat into something more radical. So there is no silver bullet. You know, I, I think you know, the, the much grander, grandiose kind of appeals to liberty are, you know, Bitcoin, you know, it's technology that can truly revolutionize the thing. This, this is a, a way of trying to push our ideas within the framework that already exists. And, and so that, that just requires working at the, the county, state, you know, local level and a way to change the demographic of your average person closer to where we are. Um, and again, you know, I, I favor all of the public policy. I, I don't think politics itself is the only way to achieve liberty. But I think if you're going to pursue a political approach, this is the best way to take advantage of the world we live in in 2021. This sounds a little bit like tactics that uh, are used on the left, meeting mm -hmm. them where they are and then using getting the ideas out there and kind of stretching them, pulling them out to the more radical elements of it. It feels a little bit like Lenin type organizing. <laughs> and I, I noticed the title of uh, one of your talks, but I think uh, what must be done is that was that kind of a play on words off of Lenin's organizational pamphlet? Yes. Yes. Both Rothbard and Hoppe both uh, enjoy kind of these uh, these allusions to Lenin. And, and so, um, uh, yeah, so that, that, because again, you see this throughout Rothbard's work. Rothbard had a lot of respect for the political achievements of the communists because he, he saw himself as just as radical. And so he recognized that simply hating the state doesn't give you the answers to change the state to a radical direction. And, and so, you know, I, I think there's a lot to learn from, you know, Leninists and revolutionaries of the past because ultimately 
what we are proposing, given what the regime is right now, is nothing short from a revolutionary uh, uh, political movement. And, and so, again, the best thing we have going for us is that there's more normal people in this anti-authoritarian revolutionary mindset than there has been before. Um, if we can lead on their complaints with the current regime, then that is what gives us the opportunity to lead them in a direction that we want ideologically. Because I, I don't think you're going to – you're not going to persuade – the majority of your average Republicans towards kind of a Rothbardian approach because very few Republicans, you know, most people aren't ideologues by nature. But if you can convince them that you have the same enemies that they that they do, that, that you can lead them to victory against their enemies, then you now have the platform ideologically to push your views. They probably don't even realize that. They, have you ever read Irvin Kristol's Neoconservatism, the autobiography of an idea? Uh, I, only the first part of it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's a bunch I, of I, I essays. Yeah. yeah. And in it, so in the beginning, he opens by saying, I was a neo-Marxist. I was a neo-Trotskyist. I was, and now I'm a neo-conservative. And he talks about how we need to move traditional conservatism to this neo-conservatism yeah. and that Republican voters should be led. He literally says like yeah. economic issues and foreign policy issues should not be left up to voters. So the, the Republican rank and file, I'm sure I used to read this on my show all the time that do not realize that that he had actually intentionally moved it towards something, not only with maybe tactics of that, but that actually was ideologically totalitarian in a way. And that so now I think that they don't they don't realize that. And when you say you want to reach the voters, because of how successful he was, I often wonder if the voters are really in charge anymore. And I think that that I see it more on the national level. That was another thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, you, you have inside experience at, in D.C. How I mean, how different is it? It's, I've heard from insiders there that it's just all quid pro quo. I mean, it's just all quid pro quo and that it's that's something different. And I just wonder, is it really up to the voters and is it different from the local level to to the national level. Yeah, at the federal level, democracy is purely ceremonial. I mean, you, you have what, 537 elected individuals within DC? Like, you, you uh, 437, like, it, it's, it's the, the, the majority of the governing apparatus at the federal level is, bureaucrat, is unelected bureaucrats, committee staffers, et cetera, right? And so like politics at the DC level at its best is quid pro quo. More often than not, you have a lot of republic, a lot of, of congressmen who outsource their decision-making to staffers who are guided by, you know, their, their personal relationship with lobbyists, not even for like an ideological, hey, give me that, like just because they buy them drinks at the bar. Like you know, <laughs> the, the, the number of mediocre individuals making the decisions within Congress is, is, is fascinating to see firsthand. But that, that's also why like, there's no way of electing yourself into to making the federal government less awful. Like the, 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 we saw this the last four years that you know a democratically elected president can be undermined simply by personnel. And it's fair to argue that is a valid criticism. Like, well, Trump should have hired more, you know, better personnel. Absolutely, but the problem is there's not a lot. Of, there's not a very large personnel class to actually hire from in terms of a talent pool to staff all these positions that the executive branch has to do. And also, like Trump just wasn't, you know, Trump wasn't you know, sitting the last thirty years trying to, to to plan out this giant scheme to radically change America. 
Um, what you do have, though, is that, and, and again, like, if you get, so that, that's why, like, in this larger idea of, like, libertarian strategy, you have some people that say, well, the best way for libertarians to advance is by creating more libertarians. As I, I work for the Mises Institute, our goal is education. I'm all in favor of creating as many Austrian libertarians as you can. But ultimately, for political success, you don't need to create more libertarians. All you need to do is create more influential libertarians. And so if you get a libertarian within a decision-making uh, position within D.C., then it doesn't matter if their views reflect the majority of Republican voters, American voters, etc. They now have a position which most people don't know exists in a way that can actually dictate policy. And, and so, for example, like if you like, I, I know for fact, like, like, like uh, John Allison, who was a, the former president of Cato. Um, I don't hold that against him. He actually, he's, his, his book on the financial crisis is great. Like he's one of my most, I think he's one of the most respected people in, in the American banking industry, in my opinion. He, he had the opportunity to be in Trump's and to be in a decision-making capacity under Trump. He turned it down because he knew where the economy was and didn't want a piece of it. But like there, you you had an opportunity there where you could have someone actually make policy that can regardless of the democratic choice there. Now, it, it is different at a state and local level. Uh, at, at the state level, you, you have a lot, you, it, you, being one of 140 in Tallahassee, the number, you, you know, the, the connection between the average person and the decision-making there is, is very different than it is at the national level. Um, and, and, and I think in general, in terms of, of opportunities for non-ideological you know, government reform to the extent they exist, getting serious about the structure of government rather than the ideology of government you know, moving America away from what we have right now to something more like the Swiss model, which is kind of a true federalist decentralized power thing. I think those are good institutional reforms. Um, but in the short term, we need to recognize that Washington can't be fixed by elections at all. It's, it's going to be better to try to get libertarians into those decision-making things through larger parties and then work at the state level to get some of the really radical policy out there. Because, I mean, what we've seen is that, you know, the biggest checkmark on kind of the, the public health apparatus you know, was only, you know, with a state like Florida saying no to the national zeitgeist of proper science, you know, quote unquote, right? And so when you have states actually taking strong ideological positions, similar like, I mean, Missouri has, has decided to nullify uh, federal gun control laws, anything that doesn't come out, um, you've seen it with, you, you even saw this with the left, the way that they try to nullify uh, Trump's and immigration services, things like that. The more that you normalize state actors going against the whims of the federal regime, the better off we're going to be in terms of tackling the real issue here, which I think is less than government itself, though obviously that that's that's a larger goal. The real issue is the control of the federal regime, which is the, the least democratic form of government that exists in America. From a strategy standpoint, how do you stop that from kind of blowing back on it? So you kind of create this organization or an organization is somewhat co-opt maybe, but you get in there and then you kind of stretch that group to the radical ideas. How do you prevent someone from using similar tactics to co-opt that organizational weapon, as, as it might be called, a bad actor from stepping in mm -hmm. and co-opting it? Yeah. You have to beat them. I mean, ultimately, there's no way of creating. And I think this, a lot of libertarians, they, they look at, I think a lot of libertarians fear um, success because the, the, the goal, the, the, the fear is that, okay, well, if I have as much power to impose my will, what stops someone who I disagree with taking over and then imposing their will? 
and like, and ultimately, when it comes down to it, like, well, I mean, we as libertarians, we should understand, right? Like, like the, the Constitution didn't succeed at its goal of reigning in federal power, right? The restraints to federal power that exist are not the product of the Constitution. They are the product of unwritten political norms, the, 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 the traditions, right? The filibuster is not in the Constitution. It's a tradition of, of D.C. politics, um, you know, not, you know, uh, uh, not engaging in uh, uh, there's, there's other types of behavior that historically you don't engage in, not because it's constitutionally bound, but because, you know, it's just not the way things are done. What we've seen the last in, in recent history is kind of a breakdown of these political norms, and we, we've seen it both in the kind of the parliamentary side. We see it with the real um, ex, uh, 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 acceleration of corporate censorship of political thought during the 2020 election, et cetera. Right, um, but ultimately, the way that you actually maintain your ideas is by maintaining people sympathetic to your views in positions of power, and so you you have to beat. And, and the, the one advantage that we have as libertarians is that there's always kind of this this plan B or C or D. You know, it's, it's the last plan in the book that you know we recognize the inherent uh, uh, instability of the current economic apparatus, right? You know, that, that's where the good old zero hedge posting comes in, where like you know, we, we can identify all the ways that this 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 uh, jingo jinga tower of financial instability, the way it all comes down and. And if, if, if governments don't get their physical house in order, then we're going to have all these crises. Like that's always kind of the ultimately the out is like the entire thing collapses um, just with the full, full sake of economics. Right. If so, so ultimately, these are all, OK, well, how can we prevent that collapse? And, and they, so there's, there's not a clean way that prevents us from losing. You know, that it, ultimately, if you have a strong governor in a state and that governor has the wrong ideology, then they can use that power in ways that we don't like. Uh, but I think ultimately, if there's going to be a political solution in the short term, it requires being successful, even if that means other people can be successful doing what you do. And I, and I think giving us as many hopes, as, as many chances as possible to avert total collapse is a worldwide goal, because I, I think that there's a lot of libertarians that are, are perhaps a little, a little naive to what collapse really looks like. And so you know, when we're trying to find any way possible of avoiding a complete uh, uh, yeah, destruction of the foundations that, that we've taken from granted right now. Yeah, I, I think that what might be the scariest because it can be so unpredictable is people who are firm in their ideology mm -hmm. can be predictable. They, I think it was Saul Alinsky yeah. who would say, and Edward Bernays would say the same thing, never buy in to the ideology of the group that you are trying right. to influence right. because then you could fall under the spell of it. Yeah. So an actor who kind of gets into an organization under the guise of an ideology, kind of like Trump did in some ways, can be incredibly unpredictable. And that could be good or bad, depending on which way they go with the wind. Right. And that that is uh, that that for me is um, the strat, you know, the strategy that you're talking about. It's definitely sometimes you got you, you got to fight fire with fire. Yeah. Um, but that is one of the wild cards that I think yeah. is, uh, is can, can be scary. Oh, no, I, absolutely. And, and, and the idea of you know, not buying into your own hype and, and, and you know, keeping the ideology that motivates you to engage in politics in the first place near and dear to your heart is key. And I think Rothbard provides a best, the best example out there to follow because here is a man that began on the old right 
and then you know the, the, the anti-interventionists, you know, you know, old old school Republican Party. He saw that go away from him with the election of Eisenhower and the, the expansion of Korean War and Vietnam and you know the, the the growth of the warfare state. So he left and became a member of the far left. He was a member of the far left from sixty-five to seventy. Then the far left, you know, embraced Marxist politics and economics and. He kind of shifted away from them. That's what gave birth to like the, the true libertarian movement of the 70s. And then he adapted again, seeing the, foul, the, the, the failures of the libertarian movement back to the right when the political winds change. And, and I think that one of the it, – it's a lot of libertarians I see kind of, can, can easily get – can fall into the trap of kind of political universalism. It's like, oh, like if we're going to snap our fingers and create a one-world libertarian government, <laughs> the great say, no, because there's always differences within environments and cultures and people and tribes, et cetera, right? And I think it's also true not only geographically but also temporally, right? Like there's going to be times where the ally to those who support liberty versus power are going to be on the left. Like, yeah, you know, I'm not saying the only the only goal or the only the only strategy for libertarianism is always on the right. It's only that when you have the American right today actively suspicious of you know the, the national security state, you've got people like. Uh, Darren Beatty at Revolver News, you know, actually calling out, you know, the, the FBI and the CIA as a, as, as a far greater threat to your average Americans than anything that's going on in Beijing, right? Here are natural allies that have traction within a larger political movement and that we should be building bridges to. And, and should, should they win and end up trying to uh, impose something, you know, radical the other way against us that's just as great a threat, then we can deal with that then. You, you respond to these dynamics as they are. Um, but but in the short term, the goal should be coalition building and maximizing our influence rather than creating kind of a, a safe space for libertarians where we can all agree on how smart we are and how many more <laughs> solutions we have than everyone else but without actually changing anything in the larger world around us. I was actually thinking that the Trump moment was such an opportunity to get mm -hmm. the left to embrace a kind of renewal of the Tenth Amendment to mm -hmm. take back the Constitution. And by this at the same time, which I I think and I hope I was want to ask you this, uh, use state nullification as a way to just negate the unconstitutional laws of Congress without having to depend on a Supreme Court that is clearly exercising extra constitutional power when it tells decides whether Congress's laws are OK or not to me, that should always be at the state level. And I always thought about, hey, we should restore the Constitution. But mm -hmm. when I'm hearing you, I feel like, well, you can just do that in your state by asserting the right for state nullification. Although I will say the Department of Justice was created, from what I can tell, after the Civil War for the purpose <laughs> of keeping that from happening. But maybe we have a little more of a of a, a soapbox now that it'd be hard for them to just railroad because the issues are different. Although maybe that's why they're doing the election stuff, saying that it's like civil yeah. war type stuff and you need to steamroll and you can't. Uh, we don't have time for process because these violations are so egregious. But I do. I feel like the 10th Amendment state nullification. I mean, are those very strong pillars of your strategy or are they just like uh, parallel and good? No, they're the focus, really. Because like you know, ultimately, I, I think, and this this is the issue is that like let's let's say, um, like there's a tendency like if, if you occupy the White House, then you kind of a lot of people kind of get blinded. They they act under the assumption that they'll always be in power, and that's obviously a mistake, right? So like if you are a conservative, it doesn't matter who the president is. If you're using the federal government to try to achieve your ends, 
this isn't going to end well because the 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 the, the, the large until you change the larger non-state zeitgeist, the the the, the battle for conservative values kind of you know, properly understood is, is not going to be found in DC. And, and and so like you the more you can decentralize power structurally, even if it doesn't necessarily change. You know, as libertarians, we want to reduce the entire scope of government in our lives in general, right? But if you give me the opportunity, simply uh, a break up, say, uh, uh, you know, Medicare and Medicaid, and you simply block rant those out and you give the discretion to the states, then sure, I'm still being taxed to pay for this government service that I may not like. And on libertarian grounds, I'd rather just be completely abolished. But moving it from D.C. to the state level is a major advantage, right? And, and it's like that is such a goal in general. I do think that you saw a little bit over the last four years of states. You saw democratic governments more willing to evoke states' rights the last four years under Trump than they were willing to do the prior eight years under Obama. And that's that, that goes to the degree to which Republicans just weren't playing to win, right? That they didn't know where the battlefield was. Like the Republican Party was completely impotent on just about every issue Republican voters cared about. <laughs> Democrats weren't, right? And, and unfortunately, though, I think in terms of this larger scale on you know, what is the opportunity that's going to allow for a lot of this, the issue is that a lot of leftists – one of the reasons the left hated Trump so much is that Trump made them for the first time question their inevitability. And it's like if you think that your success is inevitable, your willingness to occupy decentralization and secession – is undermined by your belief that, hey, you're going to win this stuff anyway, and so why should you concede any ground, right? And so what you want, I, I, I do think that there is value to have, you know, some, given how polarized and hyper change, like, I, I think that the political environment right now is hypercharged in a way that it wasn't uh, in the 2000s, right? I think the environment has changed. Having some Republican victories at the national level, I think may help um, speed along secession from the left in a way that might be advantageous, because I, I I do fear that the left is going to take the union is going to take restoring the or keeping the union together a lot more seriously. If California tried to leave a Republican-controlled Washington, I think that you'd have parades celebrating their departure. <laughs> if you have Texas try to leave the Biden administration, for example, right, like they're going to go to war, and and, yes. and this is one of those dynamics at play right now. And, you know, we're we're living in an age where we're again, as I mentioned earlier, transitioning to the domestic war on terror. And again, that power dynamic, I, I think that is going to be on display in ways that can really can get average conservatives to recognize the stakes in a way that's very important. Because again, I fear the, the arrogance of a, a woke military engaging with you know, a large percentage of the population that we know the decision makers in D.C. view as deplorables, view as racist, view as neo-Confederates. You know, I think Biden yesterday gave it. Uh, you talked about how. The same Republicans that he view, you know, the, the Republicans trying to pass election integrity laws in states are no different than the insurrectionists in D.C. That's exactly and what he said. Yeah, it, it's like so. So that tells you right there exactly how they see how, how they view normal Republicans. And so this is not this is not an age of unity. This is not an age of, of de-escalating tensions. This is a war, and and so the, that's that is where these stakes are changing right now, and and. That's terrifying in a lot of ways. There's a lot of ways that this can go really, really badly, but there is no hope at dialing back this evil American empire without your average American recognizing how much the elites in D.C. really hate them. And I think Biden's very good for that. 
So, okay, that brings us to now that that sense of inevitability is waning and the demoralization that goes with it on the other side is also waning. People feel like they've been galvanized by Trump. Biden is clearly a a target who looks vulnerable. People are not willing to compromise with him. They don't recognize that he's legitimate. So this applies to people, uh, Republicans, libertarians, any constitutionalists, a whole host of those people. And I find myself wondering kind of what as an individual busy person who pays, you know, works hard and pays a lot of taxes and stuff, has kids who are hardly in school anymore with the Zooming. What is the call to action for our listeners? going forward, like what is our takeaway for action? Well, uh, first and foremost, you know, I, 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 only I, I mentioned this only because it's, it's something that can get, get overlooked a lot is uh, first, first and foremost is taking care of your own business. You know, you're taking, you know, you're taking care of your kids, not allowing the, the, the pressures of the moment to overwhelm you. Cause I, I know a lot of people that, you know, that, that's kind of one of the burdens, right? Like you know, if, if you start reading zero hedge every day, right. If, if you have a, a Ron Paul view on the dollar, right? Like it, it, it can make you black pill and make you discouraged. And, and, you know, you know that, that's, that's number one. Like if you take care of yourself, take care of your business, you know, you know, you know be as strong as you can as an individual unit. The old, the old Harry Brown approach libertarianism. Yes. Um, that's secondly, that's though, great advice. Um, um, secondly, though, I, I think taking the political decentralization seriously and what I mean by that is it, it's, it's one thing to talk about in the abstract, like, oh, yeah, it'd be great for states' rights. Oh, yeah. You know, if you're simply breaking all these issues down at the local level, then this solves all the issues. Like, this is, this, these are all true. Uh, but what it also means, though, is in practice, you know, go, if, if, if you want to be politically active, right, um, then go visit your city council meeting. You know, go, go visit your county commission. Uh, if you are a libertarian that is interested in creating a podcast or, or content, right? Libertarians are really good at creating content. Well, instead of creating like another uh, uh, you know, show talking about national libertarian movement and laughing about jokes made on libertarian Twitter, <laughs> like, you know, take, take your phone and go record your local city council and then do a That's Facebook a great stream idea. breaking down. Because a lot of these liberty versus power issues, they apply at the local level as much as they do at the federal level. The, the intervention, the, 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 the cronyism of like government contracts and all of that, they, they all apply here locally. And so we, so since we engage in these political issues on a much more abstract and, and, and scholarly, and let's face it, nerdy level than most people, hey. apply, apply that in a way <laughs> We can make a, a, a difference by informing our neighbors. And it's so like every libertarian should be – the goal should be as respected by your community as you are on libertarian social media. Because like that's where you can really make genuine differences in your community. And once you start doing that, people start respecting you. You're, you're, if, they, if they think that you're, you're, you're really knowledgeable and you really care, then all of a sudden you can start talking about, oh, well – Great if our state, you know, instead of investing in uh, government debt, invested in Bitcoin, right? Something radical like that. You can talk about like, oh, well, you're afraid about Biden. Um, We should all be afraid of of Joe Biden. Well, here's how you can encrypt your messages in a way that can matter. Oh, you're you're concerned about gun control. Well, here's 3D printing, right? So you can start getting into some of those radical sort of agorist positions, but you can now apply it to non-libertarians because – you're dealing in your community in a way that builds your social capital locally, right? And then if you want to get involved in that party apparatus, which you know, I'm, I'm not saying everyone should. I, I'm not 
you know, I, I'm not someone that says that, hey, look, you know, here's here's the thing to do. And if you're not doing this thing, then you're not a real libertarian. You know, it, it takes compromises to be to join your local Republican Party. Right. You, you have to. It's, it's, it's the same way you have compromises if you join your local Libertarian Party, right? You, 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 there's, there's a team aspect there where you have to be judicious with the way that you're going to criticize some people, right? You want to have carrots sticks in, in a way. The other group dynamics are a play no matter how righteous you think your ideas are, right? It's like you want to go down that approach. Um, then you know, once it, it would, you know, my suggestion would be to follow me on Twitter, reach out to me. We can talk about these. Every, every county is different. Um, and so you know, the, the way that you can interact as a Republican in California is very different than it is in the Republican panhandle. It's very different than if you're Ohio or Indiana. Um, in general, what you want to try to do, I think, is identify where you have inter-Republican battle primaries and skirmishes between like an establishment Paul Ryan type versus a Trumpy guy. And it doesn't matter if the Trumpy guy has some really stupid ideas. It's fun. The goal right now is to take scouts. From the previous the pre-Trump regime, right? You want you want to attack the pre-Trump Republicans, and and then you know build your capital there. So like that's it, it's going to look diff- different based on your state, and your, your your county there. Party politics is a little bit different, um, but but in just in general, just can, interacting in your local community in ways that matter. You know, it, it might sound cheesy and whatever, but I, I you know that I think is one of the best ways to to make this libertarian stuff actionable. Uh, in a way that will that, that not only can can really make a difference in the long run, but also make you feel good and, and feel more invested with your neighbors. And I would add to that 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 is a fantastic idea because that is what the left is doing. Indivisible makes exactly. the claim that they have people, groups, and precincts, every single precinct in the country. I go to their trainings just to see <laughs> what they're doing, to He's see their strategies. I go undercover, you know, and give them their little <laughs> live chats and stuff. Opposition research? Is yeah, and they they do. They have a lot of people that they they get these people to come to these virtual trainings, and they, they say some really, really radical stuff <laughs> that kind of is mind-blowing. And they claim that they are in every single precinct in the country, so they are doing it, and I think it's a great idea a way to combat it is is to do the same thing and to go locally in those communities oh and it, it's it, 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 the, the great thing too is that your average american really is repulsed by like the hardcore left you're you're, you're they're, they're less repulsed by the instincts of your average libertarian right I, I you know i wouldn't laid off like legalizing recreational heroin right but like you know for the most part that, 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 that libertarianism is baked into the uh, patriotic american dna and so all we have to do is be nice and pleasant, and and you know you can there's plenty of people out there you know, persuaded against the fine, but like you can really catch on um, by simply being a decent person. And and then the, the the other advantage is that you know, given how politics has become so theatrical under Trump, right? So they happen to have a reality star as president. If, if you can simply like one of the biggest advantages I have here in Bay County is that I mean I've got. Yeah, yeah. Double. Uh, I've got a large group of people I can make like hoppa jokes with. Like I've got a really good like hardcore group here. Like, <laughs> wow. I mean, it's, 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 it's such a huge personal relief. Like it's, it's a lot of fun. If you can only if you just get a handful of people that are entertaining, and like go out there and, and you find find some sort of banner that you're comfortable with waving, right? You know, and and go out there and be entertaining and like take advantage of the moment because. Politics has changed so much in the last four or five years that a lot of the old establishment hasn't caught up yet. And so just a little bit of, bit of creativity and having fun, which is one of the most dangerous things in politics, when the people are having fun. 
the fact that we actually care about something more than getting that next contract or, or just having a, a win without, you know, any sort of larger ideological vision, we're, we're motivated in ways that your average political hack isn't. And it doesn't mean we're going to win all the battles, but that, that gives us an advantage that we should be you know, excited to use. We, we care. We recognize the stakes at play. So we should take advantage of that. And we have truth on our side. Absolutely. So uh, how can people follow you? What's the best place to go? Or what is the one thing you would like them to do? Is yeah. it just a Mises Wire? Or how do we keep up with you? Yep, yep. Uh, Mises.org is, is you know, I think the best website in the world. Uh, I'm, I'm biased <laughs> on that. I'm with you there. Um, uh, I also have, an, uh, we have Begin Economics. Dot com is a series of kind of introductory economics videos, which there's a lot of people out there looking for educational content. So that's one of those resources that you know perhaps might be useful to parent groups and things like that. Um, you can find me at Twitter at So Bishop. And if you're interested in kind of larger 90s Rothbard paleo strategy sort of stuff, Rothbard Rockwell Report.com uh, links you to uh, a Substack where I'm republishing a lot of these this 90s. Rothbard, paleo-libertarian um, stuff, which I, I think you'll see the parallels between like a Tucker Carlson monologue in 2021. And that's a lot of fun right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty funny. Well, say, say that website again. That uh, Rothbard, RothbardRockwellReport.com. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much, though. I know you were really in a jam starting out, but yeah, no, it was I, I, so worth it. Uh, it's so so great to join you guys. I, I apologize for for my my traffic delay, but uh, again, this was a lot of fun. No, you did it anyway. And yes, I have to digest all that. That was a lot, and I love that you talk fast because I'm a New Yorker. I feel like that was like an hour and a half yeah. worth of information. I just jammed into my head. I can go have a glass of wine and let it all kind of sink in. So have a great evening in that fine town of yours. And thanks so much, though. Thank you. Thanks a lot, man. Are you enjoying this special episode of the Propaganda Report? If you are, you might enjoy our weekday show, The Drive Time News Blast. 30 minutes of news of the day from a perspective of truth, liberty, and justice. We listen to the news and peel away the propaganda so you don't have to. It's free in the Propaganda Report feed on your favorite podcasting platform. And if that's not enough for you, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash propaganda report. There you can get a full 45 minutes of daily news from a perspective of truth, liberty, and justice, or choose higher tiers that give you all of that, plus access to our very special disappearing patron parties, live-streamed cocktail parties with us and like-minded patrons, two Fridays every month that are always a blast. Hope you are enjoying this special episode of The Propaganda Report, and hope to catch you at a patron party soon.